Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast, brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang here in Boulder, Colorado. And as usual, I am joined by Dave Rome in Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. Uh, we've also got Ronan McLaughlin up in Ireland. Hi, Ronan. You're, I, I can hear you. I, I can't see you. I've got too many tabs, and I've, I I've lost track of which one you're on. So, <laughs> hi, James. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Smooth as always. Uh, we are actually recording this episode uh, on Halloween, but by the time this publishes, it'll be in November. Uh, but uh, I guess we're going to kind of play a little bit with time here, but I'm kind of curious. Dave, I don't know if you're planning on heading out for Halloween or anything, but if you are and you have a costume, I have to wonder, what tool are you dressing up as for Halloween? Uh, uh, Yesterday I, was Halloween for you. I'm going to disappoint. It's, it's, it's already been. Uh, it was a good 12 or more hours ago. Uh, oh, that's but, right. But, yeah, uh, I didn't dress up. I didn't participate. I didn't have any candy. Uh, but if I were to dress up, it's a very good question. I don't know. I'd probably be a 3D printer and then just like hand people really useless trinkets. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That sounds cumbersome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, aren't costumes meant to be like incredibly uh, impractical? Like the more the more impractical it is, the the better the costume. Mm. Excellent. Uh, I don't know. I put me on the spot sorry, there. I, I mean, you're asking an Australian <laughs> about an American festival. Uh, it's becoming a thing here, but uh, I don't think it should. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, it's just an excuse to dress up like an idiot and get free candy, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, I'm an adult, so I can I can do that and hand over money and get that from the shops so do it any day gotcha anyway. yeah maybe let's just um, scrap this whole thing let's just <laughs> <laughs> uh well ronan i uh moving on from halloween uh i know it's been a little while since you started this little project at home but i'm kind of wondering i kind of figured i'd check in how's that garage coming along oh uh, the garage is Maybe, maybe maybe I should give you a story about what I tried to do with the garage today. That the garage, um, you, you have you have Americanized me. Uh, anyway, uh, my my dad's heading away for a bit of a holiday, and I asked him if his long wheelbase, high roof Sprinter Mercedes van uh, was going to be available while he was away. Not not so that I could drive it anywhere, not so that I could go anywhere, but just so that I could use the back of it as like a temporary garage to fill all the stuff from the actual garage into it to free up space so that I can get the inside of the garage finished. So I don't know if that tells you how far I've got with the, the garage, but um, it's a work in progress. It's probably the best way to put it. Mm. And winter is coming. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit like, um, is it that cathedral in Barcelona that's never going to be finished? <laughs> it's a little bit like that. <laughs> all right, well, hopefully, hopefully you're not going to have to ha you know, hand off the task to your next... Nine generations of McLaughlin's or something. Mm, it's very possible. Mm, okay. Well, uh, we're definitely going to wrap up this podcast uh, much sooner than I guess you're going to have your garage finished. Even though we have got a pretty big list of stuff on the run sheet today. We've got a, the unexpected return of the Lotus brand name to road bikes. We've got some good and maybe some not so good news about SRAM road brake levers. Uh, I got some definite bad news about Wiggle and Isla bikes. We're going to talk about uh, optimum tire width for road bikes and whether mountain bike drivetrain preferences might be a regional thing. I'm going to find out what our favorite road pedals are. All right, let's get into the news. Uh, Ronan, uh, this new Lotus road bike is uh, its definitely wild, and it is also most definitely not what I was expecting. Uh, what the heck is this thing? Yes, that's the uh, the Lotus Type 136, which is well it was unveiled yesterday for the listeners and it's unveiled tomorrow for us uh we caught one of this bike a couple weeks ago i think uh, and the press release literally landed into my inbox this evening just about an hour or so before we started recording here so details are a little thin at the moment um but basically yeah lotus are announcing their first road bike in a long long time in london tomorrow and it's not just a road bike, but it's an aero road bike, which will come as a little surprise for 
uh, anybody who's in who knows her Lotus history. Um, but what might come as a surprise is the fact that it's actually an e aero road bike or an aero e bike or yeah, I, I, I'm not. I don't think we've settled on how we phrase that yet. But you get the gist. It's a. It's an <laughs> assisted aero bike. Uh, James, you're surprised by it, but I don't, I don't know if I am. Uh, I mean, it kind of feels almost exactly what you'd expect of a modern day uh, car company doing a bicycle. I mean, it's yeah. You look at you know all the other. Uh, automotive brands that have their names to bicycles and it's it's uh i don't know these days it's certainly a theme um and yeah i mean this thing looks pretty fast and it it looks kind of interesting but yeah i don't know if i'm super surprised that they decided to make it assisted i'm i'm not really surprised at all i think uh i had i'd caught one that the, there would be an e-bike and a road bike and uh, and I think that was actually a mistake on my behalf in that it is an e-bike, but it can sort of be converted to a standard road bike because the battery for this, uh, it's the HPS, the high-performance system uh, e-bike motor, which I actually tried myself a few years back uh, in a in a SDIC e-bike. But basically it's... It's said to be the lightest e-bike motor available. Um, it's sort of a mid-drive, but crucially, you sort of retain the norm, the standard crankset on the bike. So you, you know your Shimano or SRAM or Campag, uh, you can use whatever wheels you want. There's no, there's, there's you know, there's actually no uh, part of the system built into the the hub or the wheel or anything like that. So, for all intents and purposes, the the bike is a standard road bike if you remove the battery which is built into a bottle which sits in a bottle cage on on the seat tube um so i think the mistake there was that you know you remove the bottle you've removed the main part of the weight and you've got a, a road bike but uh, i had first sort of um assumed that meant that there's actually an e-bike and a road bike coming but nope there's mm. Not only is there not two different bottles coming but there's actually only 136 of these type 136 Lotus e-bikes that will be available um, and you know just to throw some not delve into all the stats here because there actually isn't all that much provided in the press release but effectively the the full e-bike here weighs in at 9.8 kilos which which is pretty impressive An in terms of e-bike weights uh, mm. there's also another impressive number associated with this bike oh yes uh, impressive or scary uh, let's go scary given this Halloween. I, th- I think you're talking about the twenty thousand pound price tag. Is that is that yep. right? Yeah, mm. which I think by current exchange rates is one point eight million Australian. Billion, <laughs> billion, Dave. Oh, billion. Billion. I, love, I missed a couple of zeros. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's expensive. Uh, there's only 136 of them available. Um, I think. I'm going to preempt the reaction to this, and a lot of people are questioning an aero e-bike. What the heck? Um, I actually don't mind that really. I, I, I'm I'm sort of looking at I, I James, and I know it's not for you. You've already said you may be not a fan of the aesthetics here, but I quite like this, and I I mean I I would quite like them to bring out a, a non-assisted version, but um, in terms of e-road bikes. Uh, I think this is pretty good looking bike that I would happily ride um, if I if I wanted an e-road bike. I mean, it's almost visually, it's almost like a weird hybrid between a Cervelo S5 and like the Hope bike in some ways. Yeah, and I mean, Lotus did have some involvement in that Hope, didn't they? And you know, this this Lotus One Three Six that is unveiled this week, it it does sort of. Have the the wide stance seat stays and and there there's definitely a few cues from that Hope Lotus track bike, um, but yeah, I mean like you know obviously aero bikes are said to aid performance. They're aerodynamically optimized and 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 more aerodynamically efficient and all that. But let's be honest, a, a lot of us, myself included, in the past buy these bikes because we like the look of them. And if you like the look of aero road bikes. But you want an e or an assisted road bike? Well, and I mean, this is—I I can't think of any others that spring to mind like Aero e road bikes that that are available. Uh, 
Firstly, I mean, Aero makes perfect sense when you've got such a small battery because you want to optimize how far yes. you can go with that yes. bike. But the yes. other side of it is I'm kind of giggling to myself here because in Australia and the UK, it's 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 basically EU e-bike laws. So you're kind of speed limited to 25 kilometers per hour, which isn't actually fast enough to get any of that Aero benefit. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you, I th- you still get the aero benefit, Dave. You just don't really get to like enjoy it as much, I think. Yes, you only start to tap into it in the smallest sense. I, th- I think that gets to my, you know, I, again, I, th- I think there will be a lot of kickback to this online, uh, the idea of an aero road bike, especially, Dave, as you mentioned, with the speed limit. The bigger problem for me, though, is just the speed limits. I, I know there is... A, place for them and especially you know in, in inner cities or in urban environments you know it, using e-bikes on cycle paths we don't want people riding at 50k an hour or whatever um but i know of plenty of friends and family who either want or have an e-bike and for the most part they wanted to be able to enjoy the group ride that they've always uh, participated in as their fitness is on the decline for whatever reason um but with the speed limits currently in place in, in Europe here at least, what they've effectively got is a bike that helps them ride up to a speed which is typically below the speed of the group ride. Mm-hmm. And from that point onwards, all they've got is a hindrance rather than an assist. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the bigger issue here. Yep. I mean, imagine the disappointment on behalf of anyone who's buying one of these things and subject to those sorts of laws because. I mean, Lotus has always been about, you know, sort of lightweight performance and, you know, certainly now they're really big into aerodynamics and, uh, but then if you were to hop on this type 136 and be limited to 25K an hour, as far as the assists, it's like, oh, this thing's so fun. Uh, Actually, it's not really fun at all. I, I might, uh, was it Colin Chapman was the founder of Lotus? Uh, I might, uh, use one of his legendary quotes uh, in response to that there James in that while I'm not saying you should do anything with your e-bikes uh, I'm definitely not saying that Colin Chapman did say that uh, rules are for the obedience of fools and for the interpretation of smart men so <laughs> take from that what you will um, saying no more perfect mm. alright well uh, I would say that uh, you probably should not expect that we are going to have a full review of a Type 136 Lotus anytime soon. But I'm not completely opposed if Lotus want to, us to test a car well, and bike I, package. I, I, was, I, I was just going to say, if yeah. if Lotus did want to maybe bring Because that's how this in. bike is going to be purchased, right? Oh, yeah. It's going to be purchased yeah, yeah. alongside but, the SUV. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it's a little out of pace with the the car pricing looking in australia it's like 20 percent of the car's price which is more than i thought but uh yeah anyway i'm not opposed if they want me to do a, a bike and car package test never done it before it'll definitely come across like i'm a shill but i might make an exception <laughs> i'm sure we can figure out something for this dave we can figure out something uh I, but yeah i think uh i think i i do think lotus should maybe see about putting together a package deal for this thing and for customers in general, it's like, you know, you know, buy the SUV, get the bike for free. Right. Kind of be, it, it'd be kind of like the old, like Jetta Trek from the nineties. Mm-hmm. I, I think it usually works in the opposite direction, James, that if you buy the car, you get the opportunity to pay through the nose for the bike. Yes. I don't think it comes as for free with the car. It's usually the other way that, uh, you know, if there's, if there's some, something adjacent to a car be that a ferrari a porsche or whatever you've got the car then you've got the opportunity to pay like an absolutely enormous price tag for something related to the car so and then you'll get a free hat <laughs> i don't think there's anything for free Dave. <laughs> all right no you get the special edition hat that you have to pay 200 euros for uh anyway <laughs> well like i said i don't know if we're going to expect to see a review anytime soon but that would be kind of fun we'll, we'll stay tuned for that one um more likely on the review front, uh, Ratio Technology is a UK company that we've been keeping an eye on for quite a while. They've just announced a new retrofit kit. Uh, works for a 10 and 11 speed SRAM double tap road levers. So that, that would be the old mechanical levers. Uh, and their retrofit kit will allow you to run those levers with 12 speed Shimano cassettes. 
without having to buy new levers, a rear derailleur, or even a free hub body since 12-speed Shimano cassettes fit on a regular 11-speed HG free hub. So for 100 pounds, uh, I'm not sure what that works out to uh, as far as their retail price in euros or US dollars or Australian dollars. Uh, but for uh, that, you get a- 14,500. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for that modest sum, you get a new ratchet body for your right-hand lever, which is very easy to install. Uh, you get a pair of new rear derailleur pulleys, and that's it. That's basically all you need. You'll need to supply your own Shimano 12-speed compatible cassette and chain, uh, but ratio actually even specifies that 11-speed chain rings should work just fine. So- um, this, I, I'm not seeing any downside here at all. Like I've been a big fan for what ratio, uh, a big fan of what ratio has been doing for a while now. And I would almost argue this is their best kit to date. Yes. Uh, also why would you do it? Well, basically if you want the gearing advantages that you get for Shimano's current 12 speed stuff, which I think is really good. Um, but that you also really like the action of SRAM double tap levers. The gearing options is in the Hyperguide Plus shifting ramps or the the gearing ratios, which are basically the same as what SRAM have. Well, but but if you were if you have a 10 or 11 speed SRAM mechanical road group set right now, mm-hmm. and you are interested in switching over to a more modern setup while retaining your mechanical drivetrain. Mm-hmm. Doing it with this Shimano setup would most likely be a lot cheaper than using their sure. SRAM 12-speed conversion kit. Because the SRAM stuff, you've got to switch over everything. Yeah, gotcha. But with this Shimano one, if you already have an 11-speed SRAM mechanical drivetrain in particular, you supposedly don't even have to get new chain rings unless they're worn. Uh, you don't have to swap out your wheels or hubs or anything. You get this kit for 100 pounds and then a Shimano 12-speed chaining cassette, and supposedly you're done. Mm. More options are good. I still just question why i'd want to take say an 11 speed shram group keep the shifters keep all the derailers keep the kind of subpar front shifting and then add an extra cog in the back to make it more sensitive to gear to adjustment um i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm missing the the plot there i mean shimano hyperglide plus is is great but i don't know i kind of feel like if you got a fully well-functioning 11 speed group set just keep it 11 speed. <laughs> I think it's really just if you if you're after those those kind of those kind of more flexible 12 speed gear ratios that are offered now, uh, I think it's just a matter of that and if you just like I said, if you just prefer that double tap that double mm-hmm. tap shift uh, actuation, that sort of that lever style or the shape or whatever, um, then that seems like a pretty good way to go because as much as I agree for sure that that Shimano mechanical stuff works really well. Uh, not everyone likes that light action, and some people just like that really tactile feel of double tap. Yeah. Um, and again, for for that, for really what's not a whole lot of money, that seems like a pretty good setup. Yeah. Yeah. No, kudos to Ratio for continuously doing this and good pricing. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'll be converting my red 22 bike anytime soon, but uh, we'll see. I'm intrigued. I might bring mm. one in. We'll see. Mm. Um but in uh, in some not so great news, but also not particularly bad news uh, about SRAM, uh, we do have a fresh recall to talk about. But it's not definitely not what we were expecting based on the headlines. Uh, Dave, want to provide some details here? Yeah, it's. I kind of feel a bit sorry for SRAM having to call this one. You know, they're going at a stop sale at the moment, so they've sent out an announcement to dealers, and I've suddenly received a few DMs from from dealers that have received the stop sale notice and then shared it before they realized what it's for. Uh, basically, the it, it covers all aftermarket sold um, current 12-speed uh, brake lever units from Apex through to Red uh, and in sold in recent time. Uh, and yeah, it basically means uh, it comes down to the fact that there's too much thread locker on the clamp bolt for the levers. So when you torque them up, the the measured torque or the torque that your torque wrench says is not the same as the is doesn't reach the intended clamping force. Uh, so yeah, that you're basically under torquing them on the bar, and that can lead to the the lever slipping. And in theory, it could be a safety issue if the lever slips all the way down. Well, and what's interesting is mm. this is a this is officially a stop sale, but it does not apply to any bikes that are supplied OEM 
And it also does not uh, apply to any bikes that are have that have already been assembled. So it only applies to aftermarket levers that are still in the box or basically that 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 still haven't been installed on anything. Yeah. It's it's all I mean it's it it's not that silly like obviously there's an issue there and you don't want levers to be swiveling on bars, but it's also a little bit silly. Like I've I've had this issue myself with SRAM where I've talked the lever and then it slipped and it's it moves slightly and then you talk it further. Uh, how, how loose is it when you you know when you get the torque setting, but obviously it's not tight enough? Is it like you notice it before you get in the bike, or is it you notice it? When I, you I noticed it when I got on the bike, and it sort of it just shifted inward a little bit. Um, but it wasn't mm. like you know it's not like the lever falls off. You got bar tape as well supporting it. There's a brake hose there, so it's not like it it went very far. I was just like, oh, that's a bit annoying. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of funny for me because. Uh, Last year at the old place, I, I did an article about correct torque wrench usage, and uh, a re- I worked with a reader on that who now works for NASA, uh, Alex Boone, and he. Uh, Do they use torque wrenches there? NASA? Sure, it's not that important. I, I think they've just started. So yeah, I mean they've oh, they've okay. really watched what the bicycle industry has been doing and, and have adopted <laughs> those practices. Uh, but yeah, Please he don't. he made a comment of something called running torque, where they'll actually figure out the kind of the the friction on a bolt uh so say there's a dried thread locker already on the bolt they'll they'll figure out how much torque is required to keep that bolt moving and then they'll add that to the the torque figure so say if you had the sram shift uh shift clamp bolts and the running torque was two newton meters to get the bolt to turn and the end uh required torque was six newton meters his recommendation was that you'd actually tighten it to eight newton meters and then at the time, I, I actually asked Ram, I'm like, what's your take of this? And they're like, oh, no, it makes no difference. The, our, our thread locker is, acts as a lubricant and therefore isn't required, so you don't need to get too fancy with it. Uh, and I remember I, I, I looked it up yesterday, and I, I concluded that article with a little caption that basically said, uh, I know enough now that this topic needs for a further deep dive and more research than what the companies are saying. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Uh, it turns out it did need a further deep dive. So yeah. Is, should, should we clarify for a second about it before people go and mm-hmm. start reading like oh, five Newton meters plus two for running? Uh, yeah. That we're not saying no, do don't that do that. Like every- <laughs> yeah, I mean, still, yeah. End of the day, stick to the recommended talks from uh, from the manufacturers. But uh, it does seem like someone from NASA might might have uh, had the answer. Um, mm. Have either of you actually seen the uh, the official NASA manual for fasteners and yes. torque and that sort of thing? Yes, it is a fascinating document. Yes, I thought you were going to say the manual for a rocket or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not have one of those manuals. <laughs> oh, right. Pretty big, I'd imagine. Yep. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I found that kind of uh, fitting, given it's a, a topic I accidentally touched on in the past. But it's, uh, yeah. So, anyway, if Back you to do have those levers. second, things, Dave. Yes. Yeah, what, what is, at the, you want to say, if you do have those levers, or if you've just bought these levers, or you yeah. have them sitting in a box, what, what's the course of it? You don't have to send them back to you. No, because, they, they send you a replacement yeah. clamp bolt kit. Uh, basically it's only the bolt that has the thread locker on it and therefore only the bolt needs replacing. Um, so yeah, the, the nut is not a problem. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get myself into some trouble here and say probably scraping off the thread locker from the bolt will achieve much the same thing. Well, and the funny thing is whenever I assemble stuff like that on my own bikes, um, I, I don't scrape the thread locker off, but I still grease the threads um, mainly because I, I don't like how those pre loctited bolts often feel when I'm assembling stuff. Um, because even if the right amount is applied, then I, I it just kind of never feels right to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've always just lubed them, but, uh, and I, I suspect that that would probably also solve the, the case here. But I think in the, in the big world of sort of legal requirements and recalls and stop sales and that sort of thing, I'm guessing that SRAM probably had no option but to do this officially as a stop sale, which is kind of unfortunate because, again, like this doesn't really strike me as a huge deal, but it certainly mm. sounds like a huge deal and it's not really – it, it's, it's giving people another opportunity to use SRAM as a punching bag. 
uh, the irony of all this is that I was out today on a SRAM equipped bike, a, an aftermarket SRAM equipped bike um, that I recently put fenders onto and one of the uh, screws for the fender mounts didn't have a uh, thread lock on it and worked its way loose during the ride. So there I was with too much thread lock on my SRAM levers and not enough on my <laughs> fender mount. And uh, that was a rattly ride for, for, the, for the rest of the way. <laughs> oh, well, you should, you should have just taken both of those pieces of hardware out and just rubbed them together and they should have evened out. It would have been fine. <laughs> that crossed my mind, but uh, A, it wasn't that annoying and B, I'm not sure that would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, anyway... Um, moving on. Well, before we do, Sorry. James, is there any is there any word of SRAM doing a recall on a product in the market for this, or is it literally just a only new product that hasn't been sold yet? Uh, if I was reading that that recall or that stop sale notice correctly, my understanding is that it only applies to components that have not yet been assembled hmm. after and, and packaged aftermarket only. Is that because if it's been assembled and used and it's slipped, you've tightened it up and fixed the problem? Probably. All right, okay. Presumably, (laughs) or maybe there's some sort of like, you know, weird legal classification. I'm not really sure. But um, but yeah, Hmm. my understanding is that this is not as big a deal as some people are making it out to be, but still worth mentioning. But anyway, what is certainly a very, very big deal, uh, last week we reported that uh, massive online retailer Wiggle had entered self-administration due to some uh, rather suddenly calamitous financial issues. Uh, And unfortunately, just a few days later, the situation has definitely gotten a lot worse. Uh, Ronan, what is the latest with Wiggle? Uh, Yeah, so they, sorry, I'm uh, slightly distracted as you're you're reading that, just because the the updates are actually coming in as we're recording here. Um, they, They officially entered administration last, well, Tuesday of last week, but it was uh, reported in the the Gazette last Friday. We had a story up on that. You can you can check that out if you haven't heard. It. But I am getting reports this evening that actually they they had a pretty uh, large number of redundancies today within Wiggle. Uh, quite a lot of people uh, laid off. These are unconfirmed reports as of yet. I'm not sure if we want to dive into too much here on the podcast when we don't have many details, but. Um, I think it's pretty, from from what I'm hearing, it's widespread within the Wiggle company. Well, across Wiggle CRC, as as is now known. Not great. No, definitely, definitely not. Um, and yeah, some more speculation, but yeah, I think while we're waiting for confirmation, it's probably best not to, not to delve into that in in too much detail. It, it I mean, it wasn't looking good. But if these reports are true, then that's even, I think that's happened faster than maybe we would have even expected. Yeah, I think uh, I think there was some, at least a little bit of a glimmer of hope when they originally reported that they had gone to self-administration because there was maybe the chance that they could reorganize on their own and come out of this. Um, but then when we started hearing things about how uh, Cigna Sports North America, for example, had basically completely shut down on just a couple days notice, um, from what I understand, sort of, you know, no severance package for employees and, you know, no sort of, no, no real plan, obviously, from what I can, from what I can tell, basically, uh, just given how quickly all this stuff is happening. Um, so yeah, while there was a glimmer of hope initially, it sounds like things are maybe much worse than we were assuming initially, but either way, while we don't have details, it definitely doesn't sound good. Um, and looking at a bunch of, uh, mechanic and shop boards that I belong to on Facebook. It's there certainly is a lot of concern in the uh, independent bike shop world that uh, whatever stock Wiggle is still holding onto might get uh, just dumped onto the mass market at heavy, heavy, heavy discounts. And given the amount of stock that they very likely have on hand, that I mean. In the short term, it would probably make for a lot of really good deals for general consumers. But as far as the general industry goes, it's not going to be a good thing. There, there's also just the fact that, you know, especially in the UK, distributors have had a, a tough enough time of it this year with a few of them already, unfortunately, going out of business. But undoubtedly, there will be, you know, distributors with, you know, large, presumably, you know, large outstanding balances with Wiggle, with CRC. You know, will those get covered now? Very unlikely, you would have to assume. Uh, those distributors, they may or may not have insurance to cover that. But even if they see out that sort of tide, then you know, ultimately, at the end of this, 
they will have lost one of their biggest customers. Uh, out the other side of this, if Wiggle and CRC isn't saved or if it isn't saved and you know and retained in a similar sort of structure that it that it currently has. So yeah, it's just it's it's not great news all around. Lost one of their biggest customers and also one of their biggest uh, outlets for for getting product out of the the UK market, right? Like if the if the UK market's saturated for product, Wiggle historically has been that that outlet to to push it to a global audience. So yeah, it's I think the domino effect here is going to be pretty pretty significant, and I think that's why it keeps making all the headlines is that it it they had become such a dominant player that yeah I think it's it's gonna hurt people in ways that they perhaps aren't seeing at the moment. Yeah, and a lot of people are speculating, probably correctly, that um, one factor that definitely did not help Wiggle financially was Brexit, um, just because it suddenly became, uh, at the very least, more complicated for them to ship stuff out of the UK. Um, But uh, that may have also played a hand into another business domino that recently fell, which is Isla Bikes. It's the UK-based brand that uh, not only primarily focused on premium kids' bikes, but actually launched the segment 18 years ago. Uh, so they sadly just announced that they are ceasing operations once their current stocks are sold. Um, and the official announcement, they they didn't announce, they didn't provide a reason for shutting down specifically. Uh, although we do know that that segment has certainly gotten increasingly competitive. The market in general is not great uh, to the bicycle industry as a whole. Uh, and as I mentioned, Brexit wasn't exactly kind to UK-based bike brands, and uh, Isla Bikes also had a fork recall last year that certainly didn't help either. Um, but I got to say that this one kind of hits me particularly hard. I actually wrote an article about it a few days ago. So my kid, she's 10 now, but uh, this would have been, what, six and a half years ago now. I mean, she learned to ride on a 14-inch Isla bike that it was an absolutely amazing bike. It was just an astoundingly high-quality kid bike. And I have lost count of how many people mentioned in the comments on that article uh, that their kids had also grown up on Isla bikes and you know they had bikes that had been handed down to third, fourth, fifth kids, that sort of thing, and they're still holding up great. Um, it just I find it painfully ironic that Isla bikes may have been in some ways a victim of their a victim of their own success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, as you say, they sort of created the the category at least in in certain markets, uh, you know, especially in the the UK and the US, uh, but yeah, they in recent years you you look at the the kids bike competition and basically what set Isla bikes apart has now almost become the status quo. Uh, you know, you've got Specialized and Trek and all these big brands that have huge distribution, uh, producing bikes that are in many ways uh, are now competitive. Uh, but back then, eighteen years ago, they they weren't. The bikes were pretty poorly designed and not well suited for the the target market so yeah it's it's cool to see how far things have come but yeah also a shame that the i guess the first mover and the innovator kind of is the one to pay the price yeah it's super sad because if you look at what set those bikes apart it wasn't so much that isla bikes had you know they certainly weren't they certainly weren't like a, a huge company and were able to leverage huge you know uh huge buying uh, buying advantages and you know huge amounts of capital and that sort of thing. They were just so much smarter about how the bikes were designed and spec'd. Uh, and then if you were to essentially take that knowledge and take those learnings and apply them to a company that has just a lot more muscle behind it, mm-hmm. at that point, it's I, I guess you know hindsight's always twenty twenty and everything, but it's it's hard to see how Isla Bikes would have continued on if and when every mainstream company gets into that market or at least offers something at that higher end and their kids, kids, uh, kids bikes. So yeah, I mean, looking at the other brands that are out there, out there right now, you know, early rider, womb, frog, stuff like that. Mm. Um, you know, they have all followed in Isla bikes footsteps and yeah, you got to wonder if giant specialized Trek, everyone, if everyone starts competing in that space and are also able to leverage their own big business advantages, then you got to wonder if more of those companies are going to go away. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're seeing that at the moment in the bike industry, that there's a condensation of of brands. You know, I think it's it was completely oversaturated. Uh, but yeah, I think what we'll probably end up seeing from this is just that the big one, the big brands just get bigger. Yeah. Bummer, 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 bummer. Uh, well, last bit of tech news before we move on to our next segment. 
Uh, Pac's got a new helmet that actually looks kind of interesting and has sparked some discussion internally. We were just talking about it before we started recording. So Pac's got this new helmet called the Omni Beacon. Uh, it has... Do, do you get this one for free if you buy a Lotus in the matching car? Mm, no. We'll have, to come, we'll have to clarify that. Um, it's a good question, Dave. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I'll let you go on with what it is. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Pac, it's the new helmet called the Omni Beacon. It's focusing on low light visibility, which is particularly applicable given the change of seasons in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, intentionally made with some bright colors on the back for, for kind of passive visibility, but it also has some integrated lights that are built into the back of the helmet directly. So it's not a clip-on thing, batteries internal, USB rechargeable, that sort of thing. Um, Ronan, you had some thoughts on this thing. Like It sounded like you actually liked the idea of this more than helmets that just have a clip-on light, right? Yeah, um, I think one of the key things there you mentioned, USB rechargeable, uh, because this is built into Park's Omni helmet, which already exists. A couple of years ago, they came out with the Omni Eternal, which was like the foil solar-powered light that never needed recharged and sort of recognized when it was on your head and automatically switched on the, the light at the back of that. That light wasn't, wasn't great, let's say. It wasn't really bright enough. Um, I think it was... a fantastic concept and perhaps it develops into something in the future but the the helmet that i had just wasn't really bright enough what but it did really uh pique my interest at the time because i am a fan of having a light on your helmet what i'm not a fan of though is having a light attached to your helmet sort of aftermarket or you know taking one of your own daytime running lights and clipping it onto your helmet because should you fall in that helmet having an extra sort of contraption attached to it is unlikely to improve the helmet's performance and from what I understand could actually be quite dangerous um, could actually lead to, to other injuries uh, should you have a, a chunky light or a GoPro for that matter which is a, another common thing to attach to your helmets uh, uh, that's just not a great idea in general so I like the idea that Park now have integrated a brighter light that is USB rechargeable into uh, the same helmet I think also uh, attaching things externally to your helmet makes it non-compliant, at least in certain countries. Uh, I believe that's the case with the Australia's compliancy laws. And you know, I think there's if you were involved in a crash and say you had a GoPro or a, a light mounted to your helmet, uh, I think it would give say the insurance companies a way to get out of um, paying out in, if they really wanted to, because you're wearing a non-compliant helmet. Uh, so yeah, it's there's more to it than yeah. Uh, well, it's exactly what you say, Ron. But yeah, there's there's a bigger picture. It Un makes sense. Unfortunately, the injury may not be the last of the problems Correct. Uh, yes. that uh, attaching a light or a GoPro might have yes. uh, to your helmet. Yes, you'll also have a smashed GoPro and a smashed light. Well, I just meant that you <laughs> no, wouldn't have the insurance payout. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you can uh, listeners can place the the rank or rank those issues <laughs> to, the, to their own uh, preferences there, but um, yeah, I, I just, you know, it, it 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 seems from the you know we've only just got the press release again a couple of hours before we started recording here. Um, Park helmets, you know, they're they're pretty well known quantity at this point. Um, I have a couple of Park helmets, and. You know, I, I as I said, I I really liked the idea a couple of years ago of the Eternal. It just wasn't really bright enough for me. I still felt that I had to add other daytime yeah. running lights uh, yeah. to the bike, whereas this seems like it, it might address that issue. Yeah, and historically, I'd say that's that for me has been the common theme with semi-integrated lights with helmets or integrated lights with helmets is they've always lacked necessary brightness for daytime running. Uh, mm -hmm. we haven't seen this helmet personally yet. We don't have it in our hands, but for me, that's, that's the big question. The, the, like not to rattle off all the figures here, uh, I'm sure it'll be on Pox website if somebody wants them all, but the vivid mode offers 32 lumens. So, um, and yeah, 13 hours of runtime in that. Yeah. Pac, Pac does. I did notice that Pac is very careful in their wording because they are very specific in saying that this is for lower light visibility. Uh, they are not claiming that this is a daytime running light. Yep. Uh, and for for reference, or I guess for the sake of comparison, uh, for the sake of comparison, uh, that 32 lumen output that Pac is claiming, uh, we can compare that to say like a Bontrager Flare RT rear light, 
And that in daytime flashing mode puts out 90 lumens, which granted lumens isn't the be all end all as far as visibility goes, yeah. but in terms of just total output, that gives you some some idea of what the relative brightness is going to be. Uh, so it, it does seem like this is just sort of like a low light thing if you're kind of caught out after like you sure. know, approaching dusk, that sort of thing. But it is yeah. still nice that it's built in. You don't have to worry about not having it attached to your bike. But either way, uh, I, I think we should get a couple of these in. We'll see how they go. So look for a review on these sooner than later, I think. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up our news for this week and go, go ahead and move into our uh, On Your Mind and Over the Head of Your Family segment. Uh, so kind of want to talk about some happier topics, I guess. Uh, and I guess we're going to start with mountain bike here first because, uh, Dave, you and I have both recently – well, Dave, you and I have both ridden SRAM's new transmission mountain bike stuff uh, a whole bunch over the last few months. Mm-hmm. And I think we agree on a lot of things about it, uh, stuff like the ability to shift under power and that sort of thing, the durability. Um, and we most, and however, we most definitely disagree on uh, how impactful the shift speed, or rather the lack thereof, I think, is. Uh, you had an interesting theory on why that might be. What are you thinking here? Uh, I come from single speeding, where I just don't shift. And... You, no, uh, I, I think it's regional. I think, uh, yeah, it seems like you were telling me that yourself and a lot of your riding friends are used to sort of like using every single, uh, shift indentation on your, your XTR shifter, like all, all three to four or four upshifts in one sweep. Or, or, you know, if you go back a few more years, grip shift, where you just work your way through the whole cassette in one one swoop and you're saying that often in your trails you're you're having to do that pretty frequently where you're just having these massive speed changes uh for me like i don't know i find our train maybe it's just riding style more than geographical but for me like i don't think i ever change more than two gears at one time on any gear system um so yeah i I don't know I, i just stood out to me as an interesting thing that i like the yeah the the very slow shift speed that that transmission insists because it will only shift one gear at a time. It makes sure that the chain's fully wrapped onto the next, the next cassette cog before it'll let you shift it again, basically. Uh, it just didn't bother me. Um, but yeah, it has been a huge barrier for you. So I don't know. What are your thoughts, James? Well, because I think when you and I were talking about it, I think what we had determined was that your trails, it sounds like they're kind of more rolling um whereas not, this not necessarily yeah i mean it's i mean they're definitely our rolling trails but no we have a lot of sandstone with like sharp corners and yeah little g outs and yeah but but as far as like big elevation changes like a lot mm-hmm. of our stuff i mean it's basically like steep up steep down not a whole lot in between uh so it's not uncommon at all for us to have pretty big changes in speed versus slow to, you know, relative, whether it's slow to fast or fast to slow. Mm. Uh, and while I definitely do uh, do a whole bunch of single shifts, uh, it's almost probably equally often that I'm shifting two, three, four gears at a time, just because there's such an abrupt change in speed when you start heading downhill or whatever. Mm. Uh, and then at that point, I, I think this is where we were having conflicting views on this stuff is because I was frequently trying to shift like halfway down the cassette in one go and I'm just waiting an eternity for that to happen. And then mm. almost kind of forgetting how many times I pushed the button at that point. And then like, uh, like when I raced the Breck Epic back in, back in August, I found that almost, I shouldn't say almost every time, but a lot of the times when the trail started heading downhill at that point, uh, I had upshift a bunch of gears and then I'd have to sort of downshift another one or something because I kept overshooting it as I was mm-hmm. waiting and just like kept like frantically pushing the button, trying to get it to go. Um, but yeah, it seems like, I mean, it, I think I'm going to agree with you, Dave, because it does seem to be a regional thing or at least a a type of trail thing, because Mm. I have talked to a bunch of people who say that they don't mind the slowness at all. Um, and then I have also talked to a bunch of people who are like, I can't handle the slowness, the slowness, because I just can't shift enough gears quickly enough. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that it's it's probably equal parts regional and equal parts riding style um but yeah it's it's definitely does seem to be rider dependent so i think i think the conclusion that we came up to is that if you currently ride say shimano or 
or previous SRAM and you are forever dumping a bunch of gears, uh, or if you're one of the rare people that actually owns grip shift still for the reason of the ability to jump, dump, dump through gears, then you're probably going to hate transmission. Or at least be frustrated with it. Yeah. To some degree anyway. Because yeah. again, like the shift security and that sort of thing is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Shift speed, yeah, not so much. But yeah, yeah, apparently whether or not that matters is kind of very rider and region dependent. So yeah. your your mileage may vary. Uh, moving back to the road though, uh, Ronan, you recently posted on your Instagram account that you were asking people for questions about the review that you're wrapping up on that new Cannondale Super 6 Evo 4. Uh, and there was one in particular that seemed pretty ripe for discussion because someone was asking what you thought was the sweet spot in terms of tire width for that bike. Uh, something that balances rolling resistance and grip and pressure for comfort. Uh, there, that person was thinking general use context, including what would make sense to take the Alps, for example, alongside normal local riding. And this is kind of a, I don't want to say a can of worms, but it certainly is a pretty big topic, I think. So Ronan, what would you think is the best tire size, I guess, maybe for that type of bike in general. Yeah. I mean, this, this, uh, I, I posted that yesterday evening, uh, and that comment came back pretty quickly. And, and, you know, I tried to have this conversation with my wife, who's, uh, pretty, uh, sleep deprived at the moment, looking after a 13 week old kid. And, and, and then I tried to have it with my nearly five year old daughter and, and neither of them were too interested. So I thought I would bring it up here. Uh, seems it was over their heads or something. I'm not sure, but, um, or either that, or they just were entirely not interested. I, I, th- I th- so I thought a, a bit about this. I'll, I'll just give you my answer. First of all, I think, uh, Maybe a thirty on the rear and a twenty-eight in the front mm. would would be the way I would Next. go. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, I mean the it was Matt Search, I think is his name, who had uh, popped this question into my comments and my DMs. We we normally take questions through uh, our Escape members Discord, but we'll make an exception this once. Uh, and he had specifically asked about you know if you were taking a trip to the Alps, in which case I think maybe a, a 28, 28 you know, matched front and rear would be closer to what I would go for. But for the roads I'm riding here, that Ridley Falcon I reviewed recently was delivered with a 30 on the rear and a 28 in the front, which I really quite liked. Uh, it's not something you see all that often. Um, and so I think that would be the way I would go. What I would not do is run with the tires that Cannondale ship with that bike, which is tube type only GP5000s mm. in size 25 millimeter, which I can't really work out why you would do that other than you got a cracking deal on 25 millimeter I was going to say tires. I'm, <laughs> uh, my understanding is that a lot of tire companies were caught a little off guard with the, the mm. sheer demand for tubeless 28s or, or 30 mm. mil tires so I'm wondering if that spec choice is purely and nothing more uh, availability related the, the only other answer I can come up with is perhaps the 25s being smaller might weigh slightly less. Oh, they definitely do. When you pick and, it up, and the when you pick it up in a bike shop, that yeah. feels lighter. Then so yeah, um, yeah. That and I'm not sure what Cannon. I, well, I can't remember anyway. What Cannondale was saying was optimum uh, with that frame and fork and with the wheels as far as the as far as aerodynamic performance goes. Uh, the other thing to remember too, as far as as far as spec on complete bikes go, because it's something that I feel like we talked about a fair bit. How 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 sometimes spec seems to be kind of behind the times as far as what people are actually running is uh, we kind of have to remember that a lot of these spec sheets are, are determined quite far in advance. Um, and especially with how certain things are changing very, very quickly. And I would say tire sizes would fall into that category. Um, you know, a 25, which on that rim probably inflates closer to 26, maybe even 27. Um, but at the time, that may that may have been just a perfectly fine option uh, for for pure road riding, and I would say it still is a pretty good option for road riding. But uh, certainly, way ha- the way things have evolved in terms of preferences, yeah, twenty eight I think would be would be more fitting. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I think uh, you're touching on something really important there, James, which is um, what is known to be fastest on there on the bike. So if that bike in its stock configuration where to go to say to tour magazine into a wind tunnel uh how that bike would stack up and 
that's the same reason why Specialized with their latest tarmac still equip 26 mil tires. Uh, yeah, because that's the fastest, that's the best optimized tire for the the Roval Rapide rims. Uh, so yeah, I think there's still an element there of their potentially building the fastest bike that they can with the components they have, uh, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense for the end user. Um, agreed. But also, I mean, if you're going to do that, then put narrow handlebars on and. Yes. Not the white, which yes. was another question that popped up on 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 the Instagram post: is yes. why are they putting these wider bars on bikes that are designed to be aero? Yeah, uh, and that the... same question came up in my Polygon uh, Helios review that was published a few days ago, which has a forty-two centimeter flared handlebar on a, a fifty-four centimeter bike. Yep. So mm. so yeah, I mean it flares out to like forty-five centimeters at the drops, which is definitely not belonging on an aero road bike. Uh, and fundamentally, it comes back to. I think it's just a legacy thing that people are used to that bar width on that size bike and that it doesn't prevent the bike from being sold. Mm. It maybe goes back to what I mentioned earlier as well, that while we are thinking about optimized performance, a lot of people, myself included in the past, buy bikes based on how they look. Mm. And, you know, if you like the look of an aero bike and you don't really care about aero, you might not care what width your bars are. But uh, anyway, that that's slightly getting off topic. Uh, yeah. The other thing I just wanted to mention, though, on the 25s that were supplied with that bike, those rims are pretty wide. I can't remember the exact external width figure off the top of my head, but they are very, very wide rims. And the first thing I thought when I took it out of the box was those tires are just far too narrow. Like The, the concern wasn't in terms of the internal rim width, but... Uh, the the rim sort of was so much wider than the tire. I was concerned about you know hitting a pothole or something like that and just damaging the rim uh, mm. or even a cat's eye or something. So one of the first things I did with that bike was was change the tire width, um, which I think is going to be one of the first things most people want to do. Um, which I just think is all kinds of wrong. If you've you've paid eight grand sterling for a bike, you kind of wanted to arrive with twenty eight mil tires, I think, and w- with you know at least rim match tires let's put it that way yeah uh we've spoken about uh quoted tire width so far you said 28 front 30 rear uh what's the measured what's your ideal measured with is that your ideal measured oh, width? um you've you've kind of caught me on the hop there i'm i'm i'm, I'm not willing to <laughs> to commit to a measure width just yet okay because for I me because yeah it, it, it's so you know it depends on the on the wheels and all, it's just yeah. yeah for me i mean this is yeah as you said it depends on the wheels and the exact situation and all but for me like if i were just to randomly pick a tire size for pure road riding i'd probably want to land on roughly a 30 mil measured with these days mm-hmm. um yeah I, yeah i mean that's kind of where i've settled for a while now too just because while I know a 25 or 26 or 27 or whatever would be a little bit lighter for sure. Uh, and certainly in a lot of rooms, it would be more aerodynamic up front. But if you do have a appropriately wide rim and wide externally, I should say, when we're talking about aerodynamics here. Um, but if you, if you do have an appropriately wide rim, I've found that a 28 mil printed width, uh, yeah. which would on, on a lot of those rims would often puff up to about 30. Yeah. Uh, at that point, you have so much footprint on the ground. They're not; they're really not heavy. Uh, and if it's on the right rim, and if it's on a bike that can handle that sort of thing, they're aerodynamically very, very good. And they're just so capable. And it, what I like about that combo is, while it may not be the absolute, absolute best aerodynamically uh, compared to something maybe a slightly narrow up front, um, it's just so versatile. You basically can just hop on the bike and just go ride just about whatever you want like even even unpaved roads if they're in good condition um you can handle those too but uh yeah it's, for me i'd say like the ultimate versatility would be a 28 printed mitt printed with front and rear but i do like ronan's idea of running a 30 28 uh just because that would be even more cushioning and drive traction that sort of thing out back mm, uh, and my my reasoning is yeah the cushioning and grip and that out back but also there's slightly less of an arrow penalty for running that wider tire at the rear, uh, for me at the front, this bike, any bike, any wheel set, if I'm thinking as I usually am about performance, I would want to be matching the the measured width to the rim width, uh, not matching like for like, but the whole rule of one hundred five and all that. Um, mm-hmm. If if 
if I'm getting that into tire selection, I would that would probably be my my first protocol in deciding what size to go with. Um, you know, because from there, then you can dial in whichever specific tire you like may have more or less grip than than another. So, uh, and obviously, pressures a whole other uh, matter entirely. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think like the the stock wheels that came with this bike i'm quite liking them um but for considerable amount of time i've ridden this bike it's had different wheel sets in it uh for a variety of different reasons um and more often than not with the the rims that are on offer for this type of bike in 2023 and going forward into next year as well they're they're more often than not optimized for a 28 mile tire these days yep uh just on this topic, I think it, for me, it's a reminder to remind people of that. Uh, if you're not, if you don't own a set of very cheap calipers and you're not measuring your actual measured width of tires, you're probably missing out on some very, very uh, affordable gains because, yeah, there's a, a high chance that your tires are a different width to what's printed on the sidewall. And by affordable, you mean free <laughs> because that is a tire pressure is definitely well, one of the I mean, best. The, you got to spend ten dollars on a really cheap caliper, but yeah. Well, y- yes, yes. Yep. But as far as just changing the tire pressure in your tires, I mean that that is the uh, number one performance uh, variable that you can play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge effect, uh, huge positive or negative effect, and definitely the easiest to play around with. So it's something to think about. But anyway. Uh, I'd say this is one of those areas where we're pretty much all in agreement, which was kind of fun to see. Um, I'm not so sure that we're all going to agree on this next part of the (laughs) show, however, because it's time for (laughs) pick one. Dave, I'm actually pretty excited about this I can't even agree with myself on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, I'm actually pretty excited about this segment that you introduced last week. Mm. Uh, Dave, can we get a quick reminder for what pick one is? Yeah, it's uh, it's we we each have to pick one product we'd choose from a set category. So it's it's kind of the idea of if we could only ever have one of those products, or if we had to buy a product from that category tomorrow, which one would it be? So mm. yeah, all right. Well, last week we were talking about daytime running lights. This week, road pedals. Uh, Dave, why don't we start with you, since this is your segment. What is your I, road pedal of choice? I don't understand why Ronan has such a pained look on his face. Because <laughs> no, he knows we're just... I'm he wondering when he doesn't even that. know. Like I know the right answer. I know the answer I have. And uh, I know the answer I'll give. And there are three different things. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll get to that. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, for me, there is only one answer. Uh, and as much as I love Favero uh, power meter pedals with the look interface... Uh, I still don't love them as much as uh, the Shimano Cleat interface. So uh, Durace pedals for me is if I could have one pedal system, it would be the Durace pedal system. Uh, why Durace, you ask? Uh, I think a lot of people think Durace is kind of a, a waste of money compared to Ultegra pedals because there's a, there's a 20 gram weight difference between the two. Um, but for me, uh, and this is a, a fact that a lot of people overlook, is that Durace actually uses a, a an entirely different axle and bearing system, uh, and that basically means that Shimano are able to reduce the stack height of the pedal and increase the cornering clearance. So I've done some research. Uh, the stack height, it's a small reduction. It's 1.2 millimeters reduced versus uh, Ultegra or 1.9, millimeter, 1.9 millimeters lower than 105. Uh, but that cornering clearance improvement, uh, you get to basically tip the bike by 35 degrees for Durace pedals versus 33 degrees for Ultegra pedals. So yeah, a lot more expensive, um, but given how long they last and how durable Shimano pedals are and how serviceable they are, my vote is to spend the extra and get the Durace pedals. Uh, Well, Dave, you and I may have uh, disparate opinions on that SRAM transmission stuff Mm -hmm. in some ways, but we are most definitely in agreement with the road pedals because uh, Durace is definitely my pick as well for all those reasons that you mentioned. Uh, another thing that we didn't mention was uh, the fact that the cleats seemingly last somehow forever, uh, yep. and they're also really, really easy to walk in. Uh, they are not very inex- or they're not very expensive at all. Uh, they have you have three different versions depending on what kind of float you want. Uh, there's no 
there's no kind of like off axis yaw or rocking, uh, virtually none anyway, unless you, unless yeah. the cleats are really, really worn. Um, and they also just seem to be incredibly durable, not just in terms of the axles, but the bodies themselves seem mm -hmm. surprisingly tough. Uh, I would say almost the holy grail in that sense where some of the older aluminum body Dura-Ace pedals, if you can still find those, but the the new carbon ones are still very good in that sense with the, with the metal pads. But yes, that's my pick as well. Yep. Uh, what clay do you use? Uh, I use yellow personally. Yeah, same. So I, I use yellow and I think it comes down to the fact that I'm forever switching between shoes and bikes that being in a more fixed cleat is not necessarily conducive to to always riding different products uh so that's why i use yellow but uh, i brought that up because um durace pedals actually come with the blue cleats the the middle float so that's something to factor in is that you probably also need to buy yourself different cleats for a lot of people come, buying durace pedals and they come with special hardware too. They, they come do. with special lighter weight hardware. Trillium hardware. Uh, lighter weight hardware. Yeah, that's pretty that's, fun. That's fundamentally the real reason to buy Durace pedals is you get the, the better clean <laughs> Indeed. All right, Ronan, what is your incorrect pick? Uh, well, I'll say first of all, I, I agree with both of you on Durace being the right answer. Um, and then uh, the conundrum for me is that Again, given we're swapping bikes so often, I want a power meter pedal these days. It's just easier to have power across all your bikes. Um, and I'm I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident in saying there is only really one option if you want to go power meter pedal these days, and that's Favero Asioma. Yep. Um, but I'm a Speedplay fan, uh, and I like Speedplay pedals. I like Speedplay cleats. And as such, I've used them for a long time. And you might think that the PowerLink Zeros that came out last year sort of solved that issue for me. I've got Speedplays with a power meter built in, um, except they don't really agree with me all that much. Um, and the increased stack height and the increased stance width, stance, you know what I mean? I can't say the that word type for some reason, but yeah. uh, is, I think, detracting from some of the benefits of using Speedplay pedals. Um, and also the pod tends to rub on either your shoe or the actual cleat if you've got a sort of narrow stance width on your cleats also. Um, and so for all those reasons, I'm back using Favero Asiomas with the look cleat, and I don't like the look cleat. Mm -hmm. So I'm like yeah. always be switching back and forth between speed play and look and yeah. never really been all that happy with either. I should, mention, wishing, I should mention. I should mention. I know there is a yeah. Asioma she option. That's too wide for me. No, they're they're horribly wide. I think they're sixty five mil wide versus like a fifty two mil width for a Durace pedal. But uh, yeah, I, I have those here. Uh, I also have the Favera Asioma, which is my preferred power meter system. It's just super reliable as far as the numbers it gives you. I also have uh, Garmin Rally in the SPD SL version. Uh, I just don't love the 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 interface as much as a genuine Shimano interface. It just doesn't feel as good. The stack height's not as good. The cornering clearance isn't as good. So it's a compromise. And then on top of that, I still I I don't know. I've had sort of wishy washy figures come from the the Garmin Rally. So I'm back to the Favero for for absolute fig, uh, trustworthy power numbers. So yeah. Whereas whereas I'm in a situation now where I'm kind of getting to the point more and more where. I almost don't want to know how bad my power numbers are now. So uh, Dura-A still is the one for yep. me. No power required. Yep. Uh, Michael Hutchinson, the legendary time trial time trialist on this side of the Atlantic, uh, I think he once wrote, he's got a column in Second Weekly, and he once wrote that power meters are like tattoos. They look great when you're young, uh, <laughs> but the older you get, <laughs> the, more, <laughs> the more you don't want it. <laughs> Oh, that's so true. So true. I am definitely not getting faster. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> there's our pick one for this week. Let's go ahead and, and get to our last segment here so we can wrap up this week's show. We're going to wrap up with our usual PSA. Uh, this week, uh, I've got one I, I, I'd like to share if you all don't mind. Uh, I know a lot of people out there prefer to carry CO2 cartridges and inflators to uh, deal with a flat tire out there. Uh, however, I know there also are a lot of people who prefer to carry a mini pump. Oh, um, oh man, I'm just <laughs> uh, triggered. I mean, I think Dave just threw up in his mouth a little bit. Um, but for for those of you who are carrying a mini pump, I understand why you why you prefer to do that. Uh, however, if you end up not using that pump very often, 
uh, one thing that I want to remind you of is to occasionally check and make sure that it actually still works and that it's actually still pumping air because those pumps, especially if you ride in inclement weather, if it's attached to your bike and you ride in the rain, that sort of thing, uh, those pumps do require maintenance. And if you don't get flats very often, you may very well find that when you do need that pump, it might not work. So take the thing apart, clean it up, lube it up, stick it back together, make sure it's working properly. It's a good PSA. Yeah, I've definitely uh, been on mountain bike rides where people have needed to use their mini pump and found that the seals are degraded or that the whole thing was so full of dirt that it didn't work. So, <laughs> yeah, that, um, that, that's always the best. Yeah, yeah. When, when you're trail side and they pull it apart and just a whole bunch of dust comes out, I've <laughs> yeah. definitely seen that happen before. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. And if maybe, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you do find yourself in the market uh, at the old place, I literally tortured myself and tested 40. Three mini pumps back to back. I think it was. Um, I nearly lost my job for that. By the way, <laughs> it did. It did come with a stern conversation about uh, effective use of time. <laughs> mm. that, yeah. I, I was going to say maybe just an additional PSA related to that is that if you're checking your pump, it might also be worth checking your tires because as much as you want a working pump, you don't want. Uh, punctures and if you're coming, heading into a winter northern hemisphere winter um, quite often the group rides that I'm on that are plagued with punctures they're usually the one person that's puncturing over and over again in a single ride because their tires have just like been uh, exhausted yeah. the winter previously um, and so checking your tires from the comfort of your garage or home uh, and addressing that issue before it presents itself on the road is um, will hopefully mean that your money pump has time to uh, die on your frame from lack of use. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Threat, thick tread caps are your friend. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this week's episode of Geek Warning. But before we do that, just a couple of things I want to mention. Uh, Dave, he's got a new, or I guess Maybe not so super new now, but he's got a tool-focused newsletter called it's Threaded. New. I guess Tools and Workshop, I should say. Yeah. Uh, so if you have not already seen that, make sure you head over to the site and check that out. And if you have not already signed up for that newsletter, definitely do that. There's all sorts of useful info in there if you'd like to do your own home maintenance and stuff. Uh, Ronan's also got his own podcast called The Performance Process. Uh, that is a members-only podcast, so... While you can occasionally get little snippets of that episode of those episodes, if you're not a member, only members will get access to the full episodes that hit every other week. Uh, Ronan's got another one dropping this Friday, I believe. So if you're not already signed up, make sure you do that so you don't miss any of that content. Uh, and then finally, uh, just want to remember or just want to remind everyone that well, if you're not a member in general, it head over to escapecollective.com slash sign up to consider doing so because it does help us out and funds everything that we do here. Uh, if that's too much to ask, at least head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Five, five stars only, please. But you get to write whatever you want. Uh -huh. uh, but yes, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review because it does help more people find Geek Warning, which is always a fun thing for us. Uh, and that's all we've got for this week. So as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Yes. Yeah,